Uh, all right, prophets. Do you know your prophets? All right, which t- pick the one in the middle? No, uh, actually, I, when I first saw this picture, I was like, it looks like whack a mole. You know that game where you hit them with a hammer? Whack a prophet. Uh, nobody knows what they look like. I thought it was a fun picture. Uh, but how well do you know your prophets? And then, so as we're going to look at today, a minor prophet. Uh, do you even know why they're called minor prophets? They're like little, are they small, are they uh, like AAA, tri- yeah, <laughs> underage, that's right. Uh, so, no, they're called minor prophets only because their books are smaller than the other guys. So, uh, there's 12 of them, they're all lumped together in the, the prophets, the minor prophets. And so we're going to remedy this. We're going to look at uh, Micah today because that's who Matthew is going to quote in our passage. And so let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. And in Matthew 2, we'll be looking at this prophecy of the birth of Christ from Bethlehem. And uh, so before we do that, let's pray. Let's be grateful and thankful as we are always, to be uh, for his word and to be uh, ready and able by concentrating and being humble before him to learn his word. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for our opportunity to be together and to hear your word. We know, Father, that all of your word is inspired and all of it is necessary, that you have uh, given it to us as a gift. And so as we look to uh, parts of your word today, Father, we ask that your spirit would uh, impress upon our hearts the place uh, in us that these, that these things or this word of a prophet that you know, not a lot of people know about. But we ask, Father, that through your spirit, the things that you would have us know to fit right into our whole scheme of understanding of your plan. And uh, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, today we're going to be looking at really our theme is enjoying the gift of God when surrounded by darkness, evil, sin, corruption, injustice, hate. And you could keep adding to that list. And I liken that, you know, it's like the eye of the storm. Um, and in Micah, that is the, the current situation that he's prophesying in. Uh, but, you know, we think about it, that was a situation in Israel, but not just during his time, but for a lot of years it was like that. In our own nation, it's like that. And it has always been like this, like... It just seems that the majority of people in the world are unhappy and not with God and not with their creator. Uh, A lot of people are uh, seeking happiness in sin and trying to seek uh, fulfillment in sin. They're involved in darkness. A lot of people hate uh, and it's, you know, it stems from the fact that we're all born in sin and we're all uh, in need, 
all of us are corrupt and all of us are born in great need. And, uh, you know, and so God shows us this need and then shows us that he provides the, the fulfillment of it. And not a lot of people, it seems anyway, not a lot of people tap into it. This is a picture, that's a propeller there. It's hard to tell what it is. But this is an airplane actually flying through the eye of a storm, a big storm. And there it is calm. Jesus is born into such a world at the time in Israel. It's not a calm time. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of nationalism flourishing. There's, uh, the Romans have had control for a long time, and uh, the people in Israel are not happy. The leadership is, as we see them in the Gospels, there's, there's a great amount of legalism. There's a great amount of tension, and you know, Jesus is born into the thick of this. Uh, he didn't. He came right in to this conflict, and um, to the point where he's even tempted by Satan in the wilderness, which we'll get to very soon, in Sid Matthew chapter four. Uh, so let's look at uh, Micah here. First in Matthew two one, it says now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it might be when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Also, by the way, as the, the Greek would have it. In the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod, now that might, the wording of that could be we saw his star rising and have come to worship him. Because they saw it in the east, and they're from the east. Uh, then, you know, how would the star have led them west uh, is a, always a question. But So we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Which, that's a sad line, verse 3. Uh, Herod's troubled. We understand why Herod's troubled. He's, he's a paranoid, uh, uh, power-loving, uh, corrupt, evil man. And to hear that someone in his district is born king, it's going to make him upset. Why all Jerusalem? You know, that, that's troubling. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it has been written by the prophet. And this is Micah 5.2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Now, um, and so you'll see this is worded a little bit different in your Bible in Micah, but it's pretty much the same. Uh, uh, Matthew here is quoting from the Septuagint. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now there's some debate as to whether the second line is from Second Samuel and not from Micah, but we'll deal with that here coming up in a, in a bit. Uh, so let's look at Micah, because this comes from Micah chapter 5, and if you go to Micah chapter 1, it, it helps us to see um, a prophecy in the context of where it is. Oftentimes we pluck out these prophecies or we read of them, and we have not a clue uh, where they are or why they are. You know, why did Micah write this? Did Micah know that he was writing of the Messiah? It would seem in the context that he does. And, you know, why in Micah? Why isn't it in Isaiah 
or like some of the other prophecies that we've seen here. So first off, let's see who Micah is, introduce ourselves to Micah. Micah is contemporary with Isaiah. Uh, here's a list of the prophets on this chart here and where we have um, this chart begins with the death of Solomon and runs to all the way to, you know, really up to, to the return of the captives from uh, from Babylon. So uh, the the fact that the northern kingdom, north and south kingdom split, and I, the northern kingdom falls right here. And as you can see here, Isaiah and Micah are prophesying about the same time. And this is a crazy time. I mean, a lot of their history we could classify as crazy, but... The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are really pretty much constantly, not constantly, but often at war with each other. Right? These are the, all the tribes of Israel, and they're at war with each other. There's a conflict there. The prophets are saying to the northern kingdom that the Assyrians are coming, that God is going. You're doomed. In other words, the prophecy of doom is coming upon the northern kingdom, and the warning to the southern kingdom, which is here. So your dates are on top. Those are B.C. And right around 720 is the fall of the northern kingdom, and right around 580 is the fall of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. And look at all of these prophets in here. There are all, and there's many more than this. These are just the ones that we know of who are telling Israel. So you wonder why, if you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah, you're like, sounds like a broken record. And there's a reason. It's because it's fairly the same message that you need, because Israel in their history are not worshiping or following the law. They're worshiping idols. They're being corrupt. They're stealing. They're, the, the leadership is doing what our leadership is doing. What all leaderships have been doing in every nation throughout all of history, taking money from the, the, the weak guy and trying to hold on to power and wealth. And so we see it here too. So Micah and Isaiah are prophesying around the same time. Now just to get a feel for it, look at Micah 1-2. Here's the opening. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now, at the first few lines, it's, it seems to be this is a message to all the peoples all over the earth. For behold, the Lord is coming forth, verse 3, from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like water poured out down a steep place. So this isn't a friendly visit from God, is it, right? You get that immediately. And as the prophets always use a great amount of imagery, imagine, imagine a melting mountain. You know, so. And then verse 5, all this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Now Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So, uh, the prophecy is really not to the whole earth. 
Although in other prophets we will we see that, but of course God is going to judge the earth. But this is particular to Samaria, northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, southern kingdom. And if you skip forward to Micah 3.8, this is Micah saying, On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. So this is what I'm here for. It's a terrible job. It is. It's awful. It's got to be just incredibly awful. There has been 500 years of rebellion. 500. There's been pockets of faithfulness here and there, but for the most part, rebellion. They worship idols. We see this all in Micah. They worship idols. They oppress the weak and the poor. And God is clear that he is going to destroy them. Not just come down and give them a good spanking, but destroy them. Their rulers hate good and love evil. There are, they have false prophets who prophesy for a bribe. Isn't that awesome? They're kind of like, you know, you can call them up. Maybe you don't call them up. You go visit them. And then, you know, give them some money, and they'll prophesy anything that you want. That's in chapter 3. All of what they do is in clear violation of the law. They rob and, and take land from the weak. It is clear in the Mosaic Law that even if you're poor, your family retains your land. Even if you become a slave, your family retains your land. It has to be returned to you, but they're not doing that. They're stealing. They're putting their thumb on the scales, so to speak. It's an abomination to the Lord. It's an unjust scale. <clears throat> the worship of idols is a clear violation of the law, yet they continue and like all of the unfaithful Israel before them, they conclude that because they're God's people, everything's going to be fine. We're descendants of Abraham. Nothing's going to happen to us. And yet the prophets are saying things are going to happen and it's going to be bad. I mean so bad. If you see this as a prophet like Micah does, like Isaiah did, like Jeremiah did, and all the others, Amos, they saw this and what they saw was horrible. Uh, you know, uh, I read an article not long ago about what an eyewitness saw in the Ukraine uh, during the time of you know, when uh, Stalin was taking from them all their grain, all their growth, all their produce from that land, and tens of millions of people died of starvation. And uh, I, re I read about this and how they just individual scenes of what this person saw that was just awful. Right? You think of, yeah, there's a pile of corpses, and it's worse than that. It's worse. Um, and I wouldn't even share it with you. It's so bad. And imagine, you're a prophet, and you see that, and you're pleading with these people. And they're like, ah, you're crazy. As I said, this sounds like the other prophetic books. The reason is clear. It's a similar message to a similar people who are a rebellious people. And this is not an anti-Semitic message because it's all people everywhere. If God had given his law to people in Europe or given his law to people in the Americas or in Far East, wherever, they would have all done the same thing. So Micah, oh, did I have, uh, did I write that? Oh, I did have a map. 
So there they are. Uh, here's Samaria right here. Northern Kingdom. Here's Jerusalem down here. Southern Kingdom. Just wanted to make you see, and then you coming in with who's coming first. Well, the Sumerians are going to, uh, sorry, the Assyrians are going to come, and then the Babylonians are going to come after that. Uh, Micah is doom for sure, a prophet of doom. However, and this is what we're after today, the pockets of hope. And they come up unexpectedly. You know, it's, and that's why we're going to read them in context. It's doom, doom, more doom. And then there's this hope. And it's, it, to me, it's just like the birth of Christ. The Messiah comes, you know, out of nowhere. Who expected him? These guys from the east, these magi. Why didn't Israel expect him? Why weren't they, why, why when they got to Jerusalem, they, didn't all the people of Jerusalem say, oh, we're, we're way ahead of you. We know he's coming. We've been waiting for him all these years. Nobody knows. Like out of nowhere. Same with your salvation, right? It's, it's usually out of nowhere. And oftentimes with our deliverance. So in these, uh, one of these pockets is the birth of the Messiah, but I want to look at several of them. But we have to read them in context. And by reading them in context, we'll see how, um, how spontaneously and surprisingly they just show up. So look at 2.9. The women of my people you evict, each, of, each one from her pleasant house, from her children you take my splendor forever. Now, I'm just plucking this out, we, you know, to get the real context of this, you have to read the whole thing. It's not, it's not long, it's only seven chapters. But notice what they're doing. The people in power, the people who have influence and power, are kicking women out on the street and separating them from their children to get, to get their land, to get profit. And, uh, you know, does that happen in today? Well, of course it is. It always has happened. It's not just in Israel. But Israel, why should Israel know better? This is a strict violation of the Mosaic Law. Absolutely spelled out clearly that you are not to do this. That you are to have love your neighbor as yourself. Which sums up the whole law. So he says in verse 10, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because the uncleanness that brings on destruction, a painful destruction... And that's a warning in verse 10. Arise and go, because destruction is coming. And then he says this, how interesting. If a man walking after wind and falsehood, it sounds almost like Ecclesiastes, chasing the wind. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be a spokesman to his people. Now what that means is, is that People are more interested in wine and liquor than they are in basically anything of, of value. If someone spoke to you about wine and liquor, he would be your spokesman. And then, in verse 12, there is an, uh, a very uh, surprising change. Enjoy abundant life that Christ came to give you. I say this to us. 
because surrounding you is going to be everything that is not enjoyable. People who are not enjoying their lives. People who are bitter. People who who are corrupt, as we just read. They're going to be around you. They're going to try and, even if they don't try, but they're the, uh, the plague that can come upon our hearts to load us down with the sin and evil of the people around us. We're in the eye of the storm. And here's, the eye, here's one of the eyes of the storm in Micah, verse 12, 2.12. I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture, They will be noisy with men, meaning an abundance of people. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate and and go out by it, in and out the gate, meaning here, essentially, of God's kingdom. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord is at their head. And this is a great change. So to these oppressed women and children and weak people, God says, look to you. And, you know, where is the eye of the storm in the midst of this world? This is somewhere around 750 B.C.-ish. It's a long time ago. But the same in our own world. Where is the eye of the storm? You know, where is it that I have abundant life in Christ that he came into the world to give me? And it's in God's will. You know, we talked yesterday about worshiping God. We don't have, in heaven, that's what we're going to do. It is, in essence, our need as human beings. We must worship God, and we must worship him now, today, every day. And it's in doing his will that we're in that eye of the storm. So in the midst of corruption, and he just kicked you out of your house and took you from your children, then, bam, out of nowhere comes this promise that you will all be be with me. And I, the Lord, will be ahead of you, and you will go in and out of my kingdom. And this kingdom will be forever. You see? So there's this a crazy, evil, sinful, chaotic world full of people who don't care about God or care about goodness or care about you. And yet here you are in the midst of it at peace, right? Because you're in God's will. And these things pop out. So the next one's in chapter 4. But the context, let's look at 3.9. God pronounces judgment upon Judah and the temple. Solomon's temple is still there at the time. And so Micah 3.9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And that's southern kingdom Jacob and northern kingdom Israel. Who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. That's their corruption. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. Right? Even the priests are in on it. It's complete corruption. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Right? We're Israel. Nothing can go wrong. You know, it's like 
people in Washington here saying, you know, America will always be rich and the most powerful nation in the world. Let's just be corrupt. And there's a ton, so much corruption. And we know this to be true. And they think, well, it's just going to go on forever. And it's not. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Right? So what, the, what Micah wants you to do here, really God through Micah, is to get this image of a plowed field. And what, you know, what used to be there and what's there now. And what's there now is nothing. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the, the temple will become high places of a forest. Forest. Now, this is where the beautiful temple of Solomon, people hearing this from Micah are going to be saying, look, I'm looking at Solomon's temple right now. And it's this, be- I mean, it would have been the eighth wonder of the world. If it survived, it is gorgeous. You're telling me that that is going to be a forest. You're crazy. But it's the way it was. You and I have hope in eternity. Say our nation crumbles around us like this. If I were there in Jerusalem at the time as a faithful believer and I saw the temple destroyed by the Babylonians. It would be, what it would be is you could read about it in Lamentations. It's uh, Lamentations written by Jeremiah. Is five poems there that were constructed by him about the destruction of Jerusalem. And his tears and his anguish and his broken heart is in those five poems. And just watching it, you just couldn't believe it. How could that happen? Right? How could it happen here? This is 500 years of corruption that's been going on. We say, you know, how old is America? It's just about 200 years old, right? It's, we're not very old. And say, well, it's, you know, we've been here like this for 200 years. It's always going to be like that, is it? So enjoy, you and I, no matter what happens here, no matter what happens this year or next year or what's coming, enjoy the hope of eternity. Though you see the powerful in our world seemingly getting away with everything. They seem to. They're getting away with everything. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody gets prosecuted. But Christ is born into this world. He came into this world. Just as it was no less corrupt then than it is now. And he came into the midst of it. And so you and I should have hope always and joy. All right, so the temple is going to be a forest. Why is that? Just a reminder... Uh, again, verse 9, you abhor justice you and twist everything that is straight. Now look at four one, And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Many nations notice here. This is the whole world. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. All the anti-Semitism that has bubbled to the surface right now, imagine the look on their faces when all the nations are going to Jerusalem to hear the Lord. We want to go to the God of Jacob. That we may walk in his paths from uh, 
For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Why are people coming to Jerusalem? For the word of God. All the nations. When, is it, when in the world is that going to happen? The millennial reign of Christ. Uh, all right, verse 3. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Meaning no more war. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Even of them will each of them will sit under his vine, under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In other words, my millennial reign is going to be perfect peace. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. He just said in the lines prior to this that I just read that the Jerusalem is going to be plowed like a field. But yet, out of nowhere, this prophecy comes that the kingdom of God is going to be on earth in Jerusalem. The nations of the world are going to come to it to be judged by him and to receive his word and to worship him. And this will be, as it says in the last, not, last line, from now on, last of verse 7, from now on and forever. So what is that? Well, the king, the Lord, reigns in Mount Zion. This king, this Lord, we know who he is. And he's born into this world. Into what kind of world? the one we've been reading about in the context here. It's not specific just to Israel at the time. It's the whole world. It's been the history of the world. We're in it, and every generation has been. It's unfair. It's unjust. There's corruption. Things happen even to the righteous. Suffering happens. Things that happen that we think shouldn't happen to those who are faithful to God. They suffer unjustly. And, you know, and, and so it says here, too, I'm going to make a nation out of the outcasts. And it, we might say that, well, God is only for the outcasts. He's only for the afflicted. But there's an interesting point here, which is actually involved in our, our study, is the fact that we're all afflicted. We're all afflicted. Those who don't think they're afflicted or don't think they're outcasts are fooling themselves because we're all born into this world in sin. Micah then goes on to state that, well, despite the fact that this is all going to happen and the future is going to happen, Assyria is coming. They're going to come, and so is Babylon, and they're going to destroy this place. So there's really no turning back at this point. However, what Micah says is that though you're going to be taken to Babylon, you're going to come back. And he, he delineates this. He teaches this clearly. But I did want to notice, go to Micah 4.10, the first part. <clears throat> because in this return, well, first is the leaving. And notice, 
they're leaving or being taken away by the oppressor, by Babylon, to, to Babylon. And he says in Micah 4.10a, Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. But the reason why I plucked this out is because it's a birth. Right? We've seen this before in Isaiah, that Isaiah looked at the city as a virgin who was protected by her walls, and the king of Assyria wanted to break down those walls, and he could not. But now Babylon comes, and they do. And now these walls that protected them hundreds of years ago are broken, and it's like a birth. Right? So the city is, is seen as a womb. And when the walls are broken and the people come out, it's like the birth of a child. Now look at the second part, 410b. In Babylon, he says, there you will be rescued. From there, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. What he means here is that you're going to come back. So we have the imagery of the womb. You know, if, they, if those reading Isaiah had the idea that maybe the virgin that was prophesied, you know, the virgin will be with child and will call his name Emmanuel. Maybe that's the city. But here the city is broken by the Babylonians and the people come out. It can't be. It's not the city. So if, the, if we thought the city was the hope and the walls of the city are broken and the people are led out like being born from a womb and they go to Babylon... And that's the end of it. Well, that's the end of it. And we're doomed. You know, Israel is doomed. And if that's the case, the world is doomed. Because all of us depend upon her returning. Isn't that interesting? Is the number one hated people, the anti-Semitism of the history of this world, since, especially since the birth of the church. And the whole world depends upon Israel. Because they're God's elect people. There's nothing special about them. It's just that God called Abraham. That's the only reason. And they, the whole world, depend upon. So if they go to Babylon and they don't come back, it's over. But the second part of 4.10 is there in Babylon you will be rescued. The Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And, of course, we find out that they come back. And then comes the birth of the king. Matt, uh, Micah 5.2 As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. Now there's more to this in this prophecy here, but Matthew ends it here. Uh, Matthew may also have in mind, the wording is actually more like what Matthew uses in chapter 2 of his gospel. In 2 Samuel 5.2 and the Lord sent to you, speaking of David, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. And that, that wording is closer to Matthew's wording. However, Micah 5 also has the spirit of this line in it too. Uh, so again, as we read it in Ma Micah 5 too, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you will go forth one for me to be ruler Matthew uses shepherd. 
And that's why some think he's referring to this line. This is when David was a anointed king of all Israel in that passage. <clears throat> Either way, Mike is going to talk about shepherding in just a few lines. And so, in the midst of this, the doom of Israel and Judah that Micah brings, this pocket of, well, there's going to be a kingdom. You know, it's not, though you're doomed, the kingdom program is not over. There is going to be a kingdom to come. Though I'm going to plow Zion, Zion is going to be made new, a new city uh, in which all the kingdoms of the earth are going to even come to it and long for the word of God and long for the judgment of the Lord. Amazing. So we've got a kingdom, a city, in the midst of you're doomed, you're doomed, you're doomed, you're doomed. Because you sin, you sin, you sin, you sin. You reject Lord. You rebel against the Lord. You worship idols. You treat the weak, the women, the children, the poor with absolute contempt. You have no love in your heart. And I've been watching you do this for 500 years. And I'm wiping you out. But you are my people, and you are going to have a kingdom, a city. And neither of those two things are any good if you don't have a king. And that's Matthew, Micah 5. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Let's read it through. And, you know, before we read through this, we must, in terms of application to us for, from all of this, I think it's just terrific to know who's Micah and what is this book about. Right? That's important. But we also see here from Micah that, and like other prophets as well, that the more enlightened by truth you become, the world is not. I think there's a, it's a psychological thing that happens to us is that as we believers get more enlightened and we see, we understand more and get more wisdom and learn the, the Lord more, that we can't understand even more why people don't see him and love him and worship him because of what he offers, I mean, at the least. And because we do, the love of the world is going to grow colder and colder and colder. As your love warms, do not expect the world around you to warm. The more you come to love your Lord and love the Father for sending him, the world will not. They'll mock him. They'll be cynical. And that cynicism, that contempt, it can infect your soul. Because you're surrounded by them. Right? You need to stay in the eye of the storm, which is what? The will of God. Christ, yeah, Christ came into this world and it was just as corrupt and unloving when he came into it. But he came to set the captives free, correct? So let's finish this uh, prophecy. The born king now has come back for you. Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Uh, that line, his going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, look a lot like Daniel 7, 
where the Son of Man presents himself to the Ancient of Days and he's, hit, he's given a kingdom that will not end. It's a beautiful prophecy. So his going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. So you see there, the child imagery is here. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He's going to save Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. God, it's magnificent. This is your Lord, your husband, your hero, your savior. He's coming back. But even if we're not in the generation of him coming back, we have been saved. In our age, we are risen with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. We are members of the kingdom. We are children of God. We are the recipients of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. We're indwelt by God himself. And if the world goes to hell in a handbasket as it is, that should have no effect. I mean, it causes sorrow, absolutely. I mean, I think there's something wrong with us if we're not sorrowful about the world. You know, if we love mankind like God does, we should be sorrowful. Uh, and we will be. But what others do against God and they reap what they sow is not me reaping what they sow. You know, I, my heart, your heart, need to be pure in the will of God. And in whatever he has given us to do during this time, to know, hey, look, my Savior was born into this world in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and he's coming back. These promises that Micah has are for me as well. I'll be in that kingdom. I'll be in that eternal kingdom. I'll be in that eternal new Jerusalem. I will be with the king, being led by the Lord. All right, now, to the end. To the end. Chapter 7, verse 1, Micah ends with a man weeping and praying for deliverance. And again, this is one of those, it's a literary device, if you will. Um, you know, he could just go on telling us about the woes and the doom that's coming upon Israel but then in the last chapter, there's another switch. Chapter 6 looks a lot like what he'd already said, uh, which is very common for the prophets. They use repetition or parallelism. They also use a lot of chiasms, and there's probably one in here too. There's chiasms everywhere. But then in chapter 7 is an end that kind of sticks out on its own. And it's a wonderful end. And it's an end of hope. But in 7.1, this man says, woe is me. Now, all of us are going to get like this, and there's nothing wrong with it. If we let it remain and sink too deep into our hearts, there could be everything wrong with it. 
Our hearts are going to be broken because of what people do, people that we love. I mean, I can recall people that I love doing most horrible things. I can recall being brokenhearted over my own stupid decisions. And it's, it's hard. It's, and, and to see, you know, a nation that I love just become so corrupt and stupid, um, you know, it's hard at times. So at times you're going to say, woe is me. Uh, if this goes too far, you could your woe is me could turn into Job, who in chapter 3 says, cursed is the night that I was born. Like, I should have never been born. That That's like, whoa, you went way over the cliff there. You went way too far. So you need to do, whoever this man is, this man could be Micah himself, or it could be a personification of Israel. It doesn't matter. Just imagine, while all of this is going on, the Assyrians are coming. The northern kingdom's doomed. We know this as a fact. It's, it's, it's right there in Isaiah. It's here, Micah. Uh, the Assyrians come and destroy them. The, the, the amount of misery and suffering that Israel experiences during those years where they lay siege upon Samaria is astounding. Think of a hook being put in your neck and being dragged away. Watching your children be, these, these guys are not, they're not going to be, you know, they, they don't have like a Geneva Convention. They're not going to read you your rights or anything like that. They're just going to slaughter you and enjoy doing it. You're going to watch your kill, children murdered in front of your eyes. It's awful. And say you're a person who's in the midst of this, a lover of God. And there had to be plenty of them. It's certainly not the majority, unfortunately, but there's many. And he says, now look at 7-6, because I wanted to, this one will sound familiar to you. For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Our Lord quoted that. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. As I came not to bring peace, but a sword. So he sees the evil in the world. The, the terrible things that people do to each other, here in verse 6, it's the terrible things that family members are doing to each other, and he sees it all. And then he says this in 7. Look at 7.7. 7. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Like, wow, woe is me. This place is so corrupt. It's so corrupt that a father treats his son contemptuously. A daughter to his, her mother, a daughter rises up against her own mother. It's awful. And as for me, right? I can't control them. But as for me, I watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. And notice he says, he's going to hear me. I pray, and he's going to hear me. Now, what's wonderful is that at the very, very end, we're told why this man has confidence. 
And it ain't because he's good. Or like sinless, I guess we should say. Look at 7.18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Wow, what a note to end on. That's, that's, it, that's the end. It's doom, but then there's a kingdom coming. More doom. The Assyrians and Babylonians are coming. You can't stop them. More doom. There's a city that's coming. More doom. When you go to Babylon, I'm going to redeem you. I'm not going to forget about you. You will return and rebuild. And a king will be born to you out of a place called Bethlehem. That's... So, uh, you know, that happens about 750 years after that's written down. It's a long time. It's a long time to wait. (laughs) But a king will be born. And, you know, so while all of us are sinners, who of us deserve this? This king that we should... Sure, he gets born into the world and he takes over the whole world or whatever he does establishes his kingdom, builds his city, and he has this pristine, righteous city that he is king over, and it should be absolutely empty. But that's not here. We saw that there would be so many people in this city that there'd be noise, that there'd be lots of noise from people, like there's going to be so many people. So how in the world does he populate this kingdom? And the man at the end, the woe-is-me man, says, I know, I know why we're going to be there, those who are be there. And it's because the Lord, who is like you, who pardons iniquity? Who is like you who passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? It's important there that he says remnant. We are believers who still sin and we don't live up to what we're called to be. But because God delights in unchanging love, he'll have compassion on us. He has already tread our iniquities underfoot. That's one of the main reasons why Christ came into the world. But Christ came into the world to glorify God. And in doing so, he saved us. Had Israel and the world seen this message from Micah, they would have understood their need for the gospel. Even the disciples would have understood the need that Jesus, when he said to them, I need to go to Jerusalem, and when I go there, I will be mistreated and die. And they didn't understand that. But how in the world is there iniquity to be pardoned? It's here in the prophets, we see it. The iniquity has to be pardoned. The son was born into this world in Bethlehem to do that. So the more enlightened by truth you become, the world will not. Do not expect it. I pray that it does. It likely will not. The love of the world will continue to grow cold. 
The more you come to love your Lord and your Father for sending him, the world will not love him. The world will mock him with mocking cynicism. And that cynicism will only get more frequent and louder. Christ was born into this world, again, just as corrupt and unloving and cold as it is today. In his ministry, how many times did they try to kill him in his ministry? They plotted to kill him. And he had to sneak away because it wasn't his hour. He was born for this, to save us. So when we go to tomorrow then, which will be probably our last, I don't know, maybe our last message on this first paragraph in chapter 2, we're going to see the rejoicing of the Magi. When they finally get to the place where the son is, where this son of Bethlehem is, born king of the Jews. And I've said it a few times. Uh, Matthew uses four words to describe their joy. They joyfully rejoice with exceeding intensity or exceeding greatness. They have an exceedingly great, joyous joy. There's many ways you could word it. In English, it all sounds like it's not right. But that's how uh, many words he uses. And then they worship him. And for you and me, and when, you know, we can fall into this woe is me routine, but when we start to say, wait a minute, you know, as down as I may be because of circumstances around me or people around me, am I really looking to God as this man did in chapter 7? this woe is me guy, and pray to seek God and say, you know what, I'm going to watch expectantly for you, Lord. And I'm going to wait for you, the God of my salvation. And I know that you hear me. And then wait. Stay in the eye of the storm. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that through these things like that are in the prophets, We are so blessed by the truth of your word, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament. And, of course, you have wonderfully tied them together. May what we've learned today through your prophet Micah impress upon us the truths that you would want us to have and to take with us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.